You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. I have Scott Young. He's the author of a book coming out August 6th, 2019. It's called Ultra Learning, Master Hard Skills, Outsmart the Competition, and Accelerate Your Career. And Scott's book is uh, super interesting to me because um, I feel like part of my job and my interest is to find you know, these uh, superhumans. These, uh, some of them are ultra learners. Some of them are ultra performers. I know Tim Ferriss kind of does the same thing. So it's uh, really cool and unique and fun when you find someone like this. And I think Scott's one of these people. So, Scott, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah. So tell me, what's, um, were you a normal person for a while and then you, you got this bug to become an ultra learner? Or how did you um, get into the sphere of finding ultra learners and becoming one yourself? So it's an interesting story. So I was always interested in learning things when I was a kid. Uh, so I've always been a kind of curious person, but I don't think I would necessarily consider myself an ultra learner uh, per se. Uh, the story that I tell in the book, which I think was really an inspiration for me, was uh, actually struggling with something. So I was struggling with learning French, and I encountered this guy, Benny Lewis, who I talk about in the book, who just had a completely different philosophy towards learning. And it really inspired me. And uh, I was sort of kind of emulated that approach to learning other things, including uh, later on other languages. So I, I now know a few languages. And so uh, for me, I think it was also just really a combination of, um, you know, being a person who is naturally interested in learning, but also being exposed to people such as Benny Lewis and such as other ultra learners that I talked about in the book that have just done these incredible things and have had these sort of unique perspective and unique approach to it that, um, you know, I wanted to write this book to try to show other other people those same stories that had such an impact on me. Yeah. How do you um, feel when you encounter someone that's an ultra learner or an ultra performer? What is it, um, again, what does it feel like to you when you encounter one of those people? Well, I think for, I think now I've learned enough about how learning works and what the sort of process is behind it, that I see a lot of patterns that maybe someone who, you know, if they just see someone like you mentioned Tim Ferriss before, if you see Tim Ferriss, and, you know, you just say, oh, Tim Ferriss is such an incredible superhuman. And I feel like I've encountered enough people to now that I, I kind of, when I see people, if I think they're doing it, you know, if I think they're legit, usually there's something um, you know, there's a few key principles that they're applying for learning and you're kind of like, okay, I'm seeing the same patterns. That isn't to say that, you know, that people don't have innovative or unique methods, but that the ones that work tend to fall into some basic categories of exemplifying a few different principles of how learning works or how performance works uh, in the mind. And so the thing that really struck me doing this book was not actually that ultra learning is some sort of 
unique talent refused, ref, um, uh, limited to a few, you know, unique geniuses, but really something that lots of people do and lots of people do somewhat accidentally. So the, the, the common story that I've been getting talking to people, this book is not, you know, oh, ultra learning. That's so crazy. I can never do anything like that, but rather seeing someone be like, Hey, you know what? I really actually use this when I got really good at, let's say, you know, dancing or when I got really good at, you know, uh, poetry or, or something that they care about. And so what I've been trying to do with this book is just, you know, can we identify what were the things that you were doing when you were able to learn something well and, and get really good at something and apply it to maybe the things that you're struggling with or the things that you need to learn, but you're a little bit afraid of uh, how you're going to approach it. Yeah. When I've encountered um, ultra learners or super successful people or savants or, mm-hmm. you know, superhumans, whatever you want to call them, it just, it gives me um, a weird feeling. It gives me a, a I'm excited to meet those people. I just, they're a delight to me. So that's why uh, I'm attracted to them. So I, I just wondered if you feel that same attraction or interest. And I would bet that they are pretty similar in, uh, in how other people see them too. They're just a delight. They're a fascination somehow. Well, I'm always really, for me, I love meeting people who are really passionate about doing something well. And so often what, you know, results in someone being kind of a super learner or super performer is just that they really care about the process they really care about doing it well and so you see them kind of go further than a normal person would or or, or take on things that you know a normal person might be like "Ooh, that sounds kind of difficult and then they're going to dive right into it and so yeah that this book was also trying to show some of these stories of people who really care about the thing that they're trying to learn or they really care about the process that they're using for learning and and, and, you know, hopefully some of that passion is infectious. And so if you read these stories, hopefully you'll be inspired to try something like that yourself. Yeah, and I know you've you know been asked about this many times. Um, sure. You got a, uh, a degree from MIT online, essentially, in a year when normally it takes four years. And you were saying that uh, it costs you about $2,000 worth of books instead of $200,000 worth of tuition and board and et cetera, which is amazing. So... Um, what was behind you trying that? And uh, then I'll ask you about the experience itself. So just a, just a quick clarification for anyone who hasn't heard of my project before. So this is called the MIT Challenge. And uh, it wasn't that I got a degree, like I didn't get awarded a degree from MIT, but rather MIT puts a lot of their classes online for free. And so if you want to take them, they're just there. You can just, you know, you can just learn from them if you want. And so I, I, I think the kind of little insight that I brought to it was, well, what if you actually tried to do something close to a degree? And so my goal was to pass the final exams and do the programming projects from something that was very, very close to what an MIT student would do in terms of the classes they were taking from an MIT degree. But of course, I didn't have to get accepted into MIT. I didn't have to pay tuition. I didn't even have to leave my home. Uh, and I did it again in a shorter period of time. So so that was the project that I worked on. And this was this was a while ago. This was in 2011. But uh, yeah, it's, it's remains sort of one of the projects that people uh, like the most that I've done. Well, it was, um, I mean, it's a lot of work. It's not just uh, an experiment. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, I'll just try this for a week. I mean, that's a serious commitment <laughs> yeah, of course. to do that for a year. So how did you do that? How did you have the focus? And did you feel like giving up and saying, oh, man, I got in over my head? Or what was the experience like for you? <laughs> well, it was definitely challenging at parts. There's no doubt about that. But I knew that going in. And so for me, the way I would describe it is 
like when I, when I was thinking about this project and I found all these classes, I was like, well, surely someone has tried to do this before. Someone has tried to, you know, get the equivalent of a degree um, and, and try to do this online. And as I was looking around, I couldn't find anyone. And I was like, has no one tried to do it? Cause it seemed so obvious to me. Like, you know, it just seemed like, an, you know, every, you know, how many millions of people go to college every year? Like there wasn't one who tried, who wants to try to do this before. So when I heard about this, I was like, um, you know, what, what really motivated me was that I wanted to be the first person to do this. I thought this was going to be become like a thing that like, you know, everyone was going to be doing 10 years from now. Now it's almost 10 years later. And I, I still feel like there's not too, too many people doing that. Although there's lots of people who are pursuing ultra learning, which I talk about in the book and, and sort of alternative approaches to education. But definitely that was a motivation for me in the beginning is just, it seemed so cool to be able to like, you know, make your own degree and, and learn what you want to learn and not have to uh, go through all the process that normally, you know, all the, all the BS basically associated with school. And so this was something that was really interesting to me. And, um, and honestly, MIT classes, they're challenging, but they're also really interesting. Like they're really well taught, you know, so one of the takeaways kind of ironically is that if you do have the opportunity to go to a really good school, I'd recommend it just because, the classes, I remember the lectures taught by MIT, they are taught by the smartest people in the world on these subjects. So definitely, I felt like I got that kind of, you know, for a brief period of time, I got to feel like I was getting this elite education, although, of course, I wasn't expending elite education prices to get it. Could you have gotten a degree? Did you, did you ever try to contact MIT and see if they would uh, allow you to get a degree? taking tests well no you know i really doubt that mit like mit is in the business of being extremely selective in who they admit to their school so to get a degree like to get an actual mit degree that would hang up on your wall i mean their entire business model is against what i'm doing but that doesn't mean that they're against educating people it's just that you know their entire thing is based on exclusivity of, of limiting who gets mit degrees to you know one out of 200 applicants or whatever it is who tries to apply there so anyone just does their own project and self-assesses and says hey i want to like you know submit this and get my degree it probably wouldn't work but i will say this though you know one of the assumptions that people make is well if you do this you know it's worthless because it's not a real degree so people won't take it seriously and i actually found the opposite that after i finished it um, people were talking about my project and i was offered you know, people wanted me to join their startup to do programming. Uh, a guy at Microsoft asked if, you know, I could have an interview with Microsoft to work there and, and this kind of stuff. So opportunities did come in. And so I think that's more just an assumption that people stick with that the only way that their education will be valuable is if it comes through this approach. And I think, you know, very often your education is valuable because you can do things that the education teaches. And I think that's nowhere more true than in computer science. Well, you had a year-long interview, essentially. Like, if I was an employer and I yeah. saw that, I I don't even know if I'd need to interview. I was like, wow, this guy took <laughs> unbelievable initiative, did this thing. I mean, there we go. That's the kind of person I want. So you you demonstrated directly. And I know directness is one of your principles. Um, yeah. Had to, had to give a good interview by embodying the principles of what a company <laughs> would look for. So, excellent. Definitely. And I, um, I learned a lot of programming. I learned a lot of uh, things that, you know, I think it was definitely valuable to learn things at the time. Yeah, I was thinking last night, you know, as I was going through your book, um, what if you got an engineering degree, let's say in like mechanical engineering in one year, and then you spent one more year to get like an electrical engineering designation and one more year to do computer science and one more year to do something else. And you ended up with like four engineering degrees. 
what would that feel like inside yeah. one person's head and what would they be able to do? Well, that was definitely one of the feelings that I had. Like, yeah, yeah. So I think, so I will say this just for anyone who's listening here and thinking about going into engineering, but they're like, I'm going to just study courses online. Computer science is sort of an outlier because you don't require a degree to practice the profession. So for instance, lawyers, I mean, I can know the law perfectly. If I don't have an undergraduate degree, I cannot legally become a lawyer. Similarly, um, uh, with like doctors, for instance, you know, if you don't pass the exams and go through the sort of formal process, you won't be able to become a doctor. Now, that being said, very often you need a degree, but like what you were saying, that doesn't mean that your second degree has to be done this way. And so for me, I had a, a degree in business before. So if I go to an office and I want to apply as a new employee, I do have a college education. But in the same sense, do I need two college degrees or do I need another thing? And so what you were saying, that was really one of the feelings I had after this challenge. Like, if you wanted to, you could spend a decade getting the equivalent of like 10 undergraduate educations or, you know, maybe two or three PhDs or something like that of knowledge. And so this is one of the things that I was really interested in when exploring this project is that, you know, our assumptions about, well, it takes this long and you have to go through this process and it costs this much money that often those things are just assumptions and that you can test them and work around them. And so I think becoming super self-educated, super knowledgeable about lots of things or having a real wide variety of skills is something that you can do. And it's something that I need a lot of the ultra learners that I cover in the book have done. And I wanted people to be aware of that option. So what do you feel like this did for you? Just as in the MIT portion, I know you went on to do other ultra yeah. learning projects, but, but when you were done with this, I don't know. What did you feel? Did you feel like, okay, I did that. Now what? Or did you plan to use the computer science degree? Yeah. Well, so my case is a little interesting because I, I have been a writer for, for years now. And, and I was like, when I was doing the MIT challenge, that was sort of right when my writing was taking off. So somewhat ironically, the MIT challenge was one of the biggest projects I did that got my writing attention and allowed me to become a full-time writer. So somewhat ironically, I didn't become a programmer almost because the MIT challenge became successful. But that being said, I learned a lot of programming. I've done quite a few programming projects. It does is something that I do uh, now and again in my work. So the programming aspect is there. But even more than that, like MIT, what they are teaching, if you do my particular sort of format of doing this MIT challenge rather than just you know, some other approach to learning computer science, is that they're really trying to teach you a lot of science. So I learned, you know, I never studied physics. I studied physics. I'd never studied, you know, chemistry at a college level. I studied chemistry. I, you know, I, I had studied business in school, but ironically, I didn't do very many economics classes. And so I did, you know, equivalent of a minor basically in uh, economics when I was doing the MIT challenge. And so what I found really valuable there is that I learned all these mental models for thinking about complicated problems of science, of you know, psychology of cognitive science. And that has influenced my career as a writer and as a thinker so much because, you know, now when I'm writing about some idea, I can introduce ideas from game theory or I can introduce ideas from computational, uh, you know, theory and stuff. And, you know, writing this book, even when I'm doing a lot of cognitive science, you'd be surprised how much of cognitive science is based on like computer models and computer science and theories of computation. So having that background meant that when, you know, someone's describing kind of like some model for how the brain might work or how it might learn, it is like, oh, I know that and I understand that. It's not confusing to me. So for me, honestly, uh, the programming is probably what most people would have emphasized and gotten out of the program. But for me, it was so much more than that and stuff that I use. You know, I just wrote an article last week where I was talking about, you know, marginal benefit and marginal, marginal costs. And this is all stuff that I learned during that MIT challenge. 
So you went on to do some other challenges, one related to learning languages mm-hmm. and a few others. Can you just yeah. you know, briefly talk about those? Sure. So my, my, after I finished the MIT challenge, I was just like, you know, super excited about this ultra learning idea and about learning hard things. And, and uh, I went back to Benny Lewis, who was the guy who really introduced me to this. And he had this website fluent in three months where he challenged himself to learn a new language, trying to get as close to fluency as possible in three months. And I mean, that is for anyone who's tried to learn a language before just insane. And it really had a big inspiration mm-hmm. on me. And so after I finished my MIT challenge project, I went with a friend and we did a project, which I called the year without English. Now we weren't like saying we were going to try to do fluent in three months, but we did apply the same approach where we went to four different countries uh, to learn four different languages, three months each. Uh, over a year long period of time. And the method that we used to learn in that case was that we decided as soon as we land in each country, we weren't going to speak English. We were just going to speak the language we were trying to learn. So it was sort of total immersion. And it actually worked really, really well. Now, I mean, fluency is a bit of a vague term. Some people think of it as perfection and some people think of it as, oh, you can have a conversation. So if we're thinking of it in the latter context, I mean, we were fluent in Spanish and Chinese and and Portuguese and Korean and these languages that we were learning. And, you know, in Spain in particular, you know, we were living in Spain. We were going on dates. We were socializing. We had friends. We were, you know, we were living this sort of Spanish life and it was in a very short period of time. And it was because we were applying the right method. That's uh, like, I I know Spanish, but I'm not fluent. And I spent some time in Spanish speaking countries. And I remember in the early part of the day, I would speak and talk and hang out. And by nighttime, my brain was like dead tired and I just wanted to speak English. So what was that experience like for you when you first did it? It must've been really tough. Like what, what did it feel like as you did it? Mm -hmm. So, so this is what I will say. So first of all, when I talk about doing this, you know, I I actually, my friend and I, we gave it, a TEDx talk uh, about our project and just sort of giving this advice for learning languages, this no English rule. And uh, I, I was joking to my friend, I was like, you know what, we're going to give this TEDx talk. I'm going to like sell it the best I can. And like, nobody's going to do this. And they're not going to do it because in their head, what I'm describing is really, really hard. And and it's for the same reason that you talked about, you know, you, you, you imagine, okay, I've spoken Spanish for an hour or two and it's exhausting and you're doing this for a year and like you're resetting the language for the time. But having done it and having also learned, like I was talking about struggling learning French and and doing it the opposite way, it's actually not like that. And so, yes, it is difficult. And so the first two weeks of every new country are kind of rough, like they're they're hard to do. And you do have that feeling of what you're talking about where you're like, oh, my God, this is so difficult. My brain is melting. I'm exhausted. But something funny happens because once if you don't switch back to English, so if you stay in the language and you're not constantly switching, if you go out there and you're just sticking to it constantly, eventually it becomes very natural because all the like day-to-day communication you need is overlearned to the point where it's super automatic. So, you know, me talking with my roommate who I was traveling with or, or me meeting people, all that basic vocabulary is really, really set in stone quite early on. And so it becomes very, you, you kind of basically get used used to speaking at a lower level of ability. So even though you're not fluent after two weeks, even though you're not fluent after a month, you're so used to it that it just feels natural, even though you're not super articulate. And uh, and, and so that for us was sort of my kind of inspiration and in, in one of these big inspirations in writing this book is, is not just that this method works, but also that a lot of people are afraid to try it, but that if you did try, you did go into it and you went into it full on, especially with a language like Spanish, I think you'd be surprised that, you know, after two months, oh, wow, it actually isn't as bad as I thought it was. And whoa, I'm learning a lot faster, too. So what did you notice? Well, how many languages did you learn like this? And then what did you notice as you got into right. the second, third, 
fourth language. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So we did, so I, I, I learned French uh, over a year long period of time. I, I did eventually get better at French, uh, even though I was struggling with it in the beginning. And so I, I spoke French already. And then I went and we did uh, Spain. Uh, so we learned Spanish there. And then we went to Brazil to learn Portuguese, China to learn Mandarin and uh, South Korea to learn Korean. And I will say a couple things. So the first thing is, is that um, you get so much better in the language in a short period of time that even though you're not as good as you are in English or like English is our first language or whatever your first language is, um, you, you get super comfortable with it. And so it was always like, it was always a bit of a shock whenever we would go to a new country because we we're like, oh, right, this is what it was like day one. We were so, we've gotten so much better. We forgot like actually it's kind of difficult in the beginning. So there was always a little bit of a transitional shock. And um, I would say that Asian languages are harder than European ones. So Spanish is much easier to learn than Chinese. I don't think that that really changes the approach too much, but I would recommend if, you, if you're thinking, okay, I wanna learn Japanese or I wanna learn Korean or I wanna learn Arabic and I wanna use this approach, I would recommend doing more study prior to going uh, just to get some more foundation in. So I did do that with Chinese. I did do about 100 hours of like learning some vocabulary and stuff beforehand. And that made a huge difference because it meant that I already had some traction when I got there to like use this approach. Uh, whereas for Spanish, I mean, you could probably get away with like 25 to 50 hours of just using like a course like Pimsleur or just some flashcards just to get yourself acquainted uh, beforehand. Um, so I don't, I'm not saying start with absolutely zero because that's actually quite frustrating to do, but you need a lot less than most people think. So you definitely don't need to take like studying for like three years. Like you can do it with, um, you know, the equivalent of practice you could acquire in about a month or something. But after you learned a few languages and you were ready to tackle mm -hmm. your last one, let's say, I would think that there yeah. would be tremendous overlap in the process and in the structure of language that you may not have seen before mm -hmm. in general that really helped accelerate your learning even further. Definitely. So the the process of learning languages was like so well trodden that like by the time we got to Korea, like going to a new place and doing no English and learning a language was like a routine at that point. Like it wasn't, it was, it was like when we were in, in Spain, it was like super exciting and like, oh my God, this is new. And what is this going to be like? And we were getting kind of, you know, wow, all right, like, let's just try our best. By the time of Korea is like, oh yeah, you know, trying a new country, doing this again. Um, the downside is, is that like, I will say that although, again, talking about this, I think for most people, if you imagine doing this once, it sounds super stressful and scary and stuff. And it's not nearly as difficult as people make it out to be. But I will also say doing it four times in a row by Korea, we were definitely tired. Like number four was kind of like, okay, you know, <laughs> we're, we're getting a little tired just with the reset, like just starting back from scratch. And Korea was, uh, Korean is a hard language too. Like it requires a large foundation and we didn't do the prep that I had done for Chinese. So I do remember Korean being harder just because it was like, okay, I know what I have to do, but I also know that like, okay, I got to learn a ton of things to be able to communicate with people. And so um, I will say like with Chinese and Korean, they're just, they're a little bit more work. Uh, Chinese uh, vocabulary, obviously quite different. Korean as well. Uh, Korean also has a somewhat more difficult grammar. Um, it's uh, so most languages that you'll learn, particularly European ones are uh, subject verb object languages so you would say like I kicked the ball so I and the subject kicked and then ball whereas um, a Korean is a subject object verb language so the verb comes at the end of every sentence and that means that you like if you're constructing like kind of complicated sentences it's like it feels like a puzzle piece like you have to kind of like put everything together so you make sure that it's all in the right order and 
that can be definitely a little bit challenging in the beginning to get your mind used to it. Uh, we did actually get fairly good at the end of Korea, but I would say that, yeah, for, for us, I feel like three was like the ones that we were like really like gliding along and then Korea was like starting to get hard. Well, you mentioned retention, remembering, retaining. Mm-hmm. So in yeah. the MIT context, how much of that do you think you remember? And then the languages, how much of that do you think you remember? Right. So that's interesting. I like MIT challenge, even though it remains kind of one of my more popular challenges, it was really the first big one I did. So I think that I did make mistakes in my process with that, that I would have done differently now. Um, and one of those has to do with retention because uh, I did not make any systematic plan for retaining the information after. And some of that's just because I wasn't too keen on like keeping it like uh, one of my examples was modal logic, which is a type of propositional logic that deals with things like, you know, usually or should or wishes or wants or, you know, and so it's a, it's a kind of esoteric subject that I'm probably not going to use unless I have to write some like natural language processing, uh, you know, software or something, which I'm probably not going to write. And so in which case, you know, I'm okay if I forgot how to solve like theorems of modal logic or like, you know, prove theorems of modal logic. On the other hand, I do think that retaining knowledge and stuff, especially you learn in school, it often degrades. And so I would have probably invested in a more systematic plan than, than I actually did. So when I went around and do the languages, and in particular, one of my goals with the languages is I should be able to speak the languages. Like if if someone comes up to me and wants to speak to me in Spanish three years later, I shouldn't be like, oh, no, I need to study for two weeks first, right? Because what was the point of learning it if you have to do that? And so for me, I, I made a deliberate effort to retain the languages. And so one of the things I did is right after um, I came back from the trip, I made sure that once a week, I had a short uh, I talk I. So it's the letter I talk and then the letter I.com. They have uh, online tutoring. And so I just would hire a tutor and we would just have a conversation. So not a lesson, but just a conversation once a week uh, in each of these languages. And that was a little bit much in the beginning. And so after that, I sort of switched to once a month and then somewhat less frequently. But it really helped for making sure that all these languages I learned very quickly, I could actually retain them so that, you know, today I can still, you know, chat in Spanish or chat in Mandarin Chinese or or, or these kinds of things. Uh, and it wasn't just like, well, I learned it, but now I've completely forgotten it, right? Okay. Yeah, because um, well, I wanted to ask you about some of the principles in the book, you know, sure. without giving it away, but uh, yeah, yeah, maybe sure. some of the juicy, juicy stuff. So mm-hmm. what are some principles that people that, you know, they, they're excited by the idea of ultra learning, they're probably just maybe a regular learner, but they want to learn better, retain more, and have an easier yeah. time doing it. So how would you approach advising someone like that? You know, a few a few concepts. Mm-hmm. So you you you're right. The way I divided the book up is into nine different principles, and these are all principles that I think are important um, guiding ideas for thinking about how you learn. So you're already learning, you're already doing stuff. So if you're going to learn a language, you're going to learn a musical instrument, you're going to learn a career skill. You're already learning right now, and so this is just sort of what am I doing when I'm learning, and how can I align it with effective principles. So two of those principles that I think are some of the ones that people screw up the most or that uh, or that people aren't aware of, that they're not aware that this is a principle of learning. And so they don't even realize that they're not following it. And so the first one I would say is directness. And directness is related to this idea of transfer. And so transfer in psychology means when you learn something in one context, so, so let's say a classroom, and then you want to apply it in a different context, say in real life. And what we've sort of discovered over the last, you know, few decades of research is that transfer is really hard to do. 
so that there are numerous examples of students learning something in a classroom and then you give them a situation where like obviously they should apply that knowledge and they don't and and this is a not just a problem of formal education but even a lot of self-education in my opinion is flawed because it it has to have this transfer problem and you have to learn this way so i'm, I'm critical of the language learning app duolingo and the reason why is because often how duolingo encourages you to learn the language is not that similar cognitively speaking to the act of actually speaking a language and therefore there's a lot of transfer and that transfer often doesn't work very well so you can spend months you know playing around with your duolingo spanish and then you go to mexico and you actually can't form comprehensible sentences very easily so that's that is it that's sort of an example of transfer there and the way around that is to start off whenever you're learning something by learning by doing the thing that you want to use the knowledge for so if you want to learn programming because you want to build your own iphone app then the best thing to start is with a little project to make an iphone app or if you want to learn a language because your goal is to eventually have conversations with people then you should start having some simple conversations with people from right off the get-go. And if you wait months and months and months to do that, you're going to have more of these transfer issues. So that's one principle. I think that a lot of people um, screw up unintentionally and it causes them to learn a lot more slowly or with a lot more frustration than they would otherwise. And the other one, which is also uh, not widely appreciated, is known as retrieval. So this one has a real fascinating literature in the psychology where essentially um, so one of the studies I really like is uh, by Jeffrey Karpicki and Janelle Blunt. And basically they took students, split them up into groups. They got some of them to do reviews. So they got them to just look at the text over and over again. So this is like a classic student studying strategy, looking over your notes over and over and over again to study it. And they got other people to do free recall, which means you close the book and then on a piece of paper, you try to write down everything you can remember from what you just read. And what they found is that when they asked the students after they did this, how well do you know the information? The people who did review were the, like, they were like, I got this. I really learned the information. And the people who did free recall were like, oh no, you know, I'm terrible. I, I can't remember anything. However, when they tested them, it was the opposite. The people who did free recall were able to do much better on the test than the people who did review. And so this sort of points to a fundamental mistake I think we make in our learning is that we think we're learning something, but we're really doing review. We're really just recognizing it over and over again. It's becoming more familiar. Whereas the hard thing, doing recall, actually trying to summon it up from memory is actually much more effective. And yet we often shy away, away from um, doing it in our own, our own learning, not just our studies, but learning all sorts of things. Yeah, free recall is pretty humbling <laughs> because, mm -hmm. because you sit there yeah. and you're like, damn it. And sometimes you can't remember anything <laughs> or you, 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 you get afraid. Oh, my God, what if I don't remember anything? I can't write anything or if I can't express anything about what I just learned and you feel stupid. But um, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, so you know what, for anyone listening here, uh, if you want to just pause this podcast right now, try to think about what we talked about in the conversation, see how much you can write down on the piece of paper. And so you, you'll definitely get that feeling that you're, you've been listening and you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm following on, no problem. But if I, if I actually pause and say, like, what, other, what, what things did we talk about? It, there would probably be a lot that you'd be missing. You'd probably only be able to remember maybe like 30% you'd be able to write down. And so that's humbling. But at the same time, it's also a key to being able to actually learn things well. Yeah. And, I, you know, I was thinking about school as you were talking about this. Mm -hmm. You know, school gives you yeah. homework. But how could school yeah. remake itself, uh, you know, to actually make students do what they're learning? Like, you know, I was imagining uh, right. you're learning cooking, reading about it. 
you know, this is probably an obvious one, but if you read about cooking, yeah. so what? You have to make stuff, burn stuff, <laughs> taste it, yeah. try it, you know, uh, all that, chop things, touch vegetables, et cetera. Then you really will start to understand cooking. So so I was going to ask you, mm-hmm. there's, there's things you can read and learn about a subject, but then the experience of actually doing it, I don't know if that has a name, but there's another kind of learning there. Like, let's say, again, if you're yeah. cooking, what would you call the knowledge of how food feels in your hands, how egg cracks, how a pan sizzles, how the handle feels? I mean, the experience of actually doing something, does that have a different name? Um, so what I would say is that, first of all, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that like no one should ever read a book or, or take a class. But I think we've got our, when we think of learning, it's very often that I say, when I talk about learning, people want to talk about studying, they want to talk about reading books, taking classes. And I want the conversation to flip, that books and classes are to support learning. They are not, they are not the fundamental, like core learning activity. So like what you just said, what, what do you, what's the word for that? Well, I would say the word for that is learning. And the, the problem is that we're using learning to refer to this narrow context of reading the book when reading the book is really like a supportive activity for that cracking the eggs and feeling the material in your hand. And so there's a lot of, um, you know, transfer and directness is part of that. And, and that's a big thing. But also part of it is just that when you are doing something as simple as cooking, actually what's going on in your mind is super complicated. So when you're cracking an egg, you know, just think about how complicated the patterns in your brain have to be to get your hand into the exact right muscular configuration to strike the egg on the side of the bowl so that it cracks, but you don't get a bunch of shell in the egg yolk. And, and then you, you, you carefully pull it apart and let the egg drop. So something as simple as, you know, that would be written down in one sentence in a book, crack an egg, is actually something really sophisticated going on in your mind. And that's the thing that I want to point out is that if you only read the book, You've never done that sophisticated work, and that's the work of learning, is building up all of those little, tiny, invisible, subconscious skills that allow you to actually practice things. So learning a language is like that, too. One of the things that you know, I, I would say to people that they never teach in language schools, but is super important if you want to learn a language, is do you know how to open your phone and in mid-conversation find a word you're looking for on like Google Translate or in a dictionary? Now, that sounds really trivial. But that's actually a core skill if you're going to be doing the kind of thing that my friend and I did when you're traveling to other places. You go somewhere, you don't know what word you need to use, and you have to look it up and be able to pronounce it. And you often have to do that on the fly. Like you're having a conversation, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I need to like look up the word for toothpaste or something because I'm in the store and that's what I'm looking for. And so it's these little skills that are often, you know, people just assume, okay, well, I don't need to put that in the book because obviously you'll do that, but it's not obvious. And it's, it's often, these are the things that kind of scaffolding that are missing and why it's so hard that if you just spent your entire life learning from a textbook to actually do things in the real world, why it's hard to transfer is because all these little subconscious, tiny little skills, like the cracking of the egg are missing. And because they're missing, you're not actually able to do stuff. So, so that's one of the things I would say is that, Think of the activity of cracking the egg and actually doing things. That's learning. And reading the recipe book is a support activity for learning as opposed to learning itself. Yeah, that tells me apprenticeships, although they're now rare or maybe even non-existent, yeah. now I see why they're so important in learning. Absolutely. absolutely. And, and I would even say, you know what, you, you mentioned something kind of briefly here. 
And this has been a conversation I've been having a lot with people about the book is people say, well, what would your ideal school be? Like, how, like how would I reform education? And the problem is that I think it's embedded in that question is that our cultural assumptions around learning is that learning should be done in a school. And so if we're thinking about teaching someone something, it should be a classroom. And I really think that the apprenticeship model is a lot closer to how people actually learn and what we mean by learning. And so, you know, not to say that we should abolish all classrooms, but rather realize that what they're doing is a much more specialized kind of learning than the general case. And that what we should be looking at when we're learning is learning by doing and learning by watching someone skilled do something. That's sort of how we're built to learn things. And if you can align your learning more in that direction, you'll actually have a lot more success. Yeah, I've heard there's a sequence of, I think it's uh, either read, watch, try then teach and there's some kind of like a mm-hmm. cycle i've heard a while ago on, on you know a good way to learn things but you want to go through yeah not just looking but doing and then even trying to teach and i know you you talk about this in the book i don't know if you could jump to that point in your mind but um yeah, yeah, what would you say is, is the best way to recall or to to truly know that you've not only learned something but you actually learned it and can utilize what you've learned so if, if people were listening here and they had one takeaway, like, just you know, they're never going to buy the book, let's say, and they just want to have one idea that they took from this podcast that would be help them dramatically with their learning, it would be this. Always think about how you're going to use something while you're learning it. And that's true, especially for things that you read in books that are kind of abstract theoretical knowledge. Why are you learning it? And this isn't to be dismissive of things that aren't super practical, but rather that it's my contention that even if this belief is a little bit too extreme, so I'm not going to endorse the full extremity of this belief, but I would say a good sort of directional belief is that there is no learning without using something, meaning that there's no such thing as to just learn something in an abstract way, disconnected from actually using it in some way. And so the learning is in the using. And so if we're thinking about, you know, okay, you're learning in this conversation right now, you're going to apply this knowledge some way. So what you were just asking about, well, how do you know if you learned something? It's because you're able to do something you weren't able to do before, or you're able to do something better that you were able to do, and now you can do it better. And so that would be my main advice. So if people come up to me and they say, hey, you know what, I want to learn, um, will be an example. So I want to learn programming, right? And they say, what, what language do you recommend starting to learn programming? And I say, that's the wrong question to ask. The question to ask is, what do I want to make? What do I want to make with my programs? And if you can answer that question, then all the questions of, okay, what language should I learn? What book should I buy? But again, their programming knowledge doesn't sit sort of abstractly in this sort of theorized space. It sits in, can I make something with it? And so even if we're talking about something super theoretical, like, you know, I was just talking about computer science. For me, where that gets used is in my writing or in my conversations with people. So a lot of the knowledge I learned about cognitive science, for instance, the way I'm using it is this conversation I'm having with you or with words I put in my book or with how I approach learning differently as a result. And so even the most abstract esoteric things ultimately bottle out, bottom out in some kind of usage situation. And if you can think of that from the get-go, you're going to avoid a lot of the pitfalls of learning something in a way where it's fundamentally inert and it can't actually impact your life in any way. Yeah. I don't know if, you know, it, I'm sure some people have said this to you or maybe yeah. not. Um, well, what was the point of all the, the things you did? You know, you wanted to be a writer. Now you're a full-time writer, which is good. I don't know if you knew that yeah. that's where it would get you, but what was the point of doing all that work to get the MIT degree and or to learn all the MIT stuff? What was the point of learning all the languages? Like 
do you feel better about yourself? Like, how do you feel now that you've done all these things? You know, quantum mechanics. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying it to be rude, but yeah. what do you feel like it's done? <laughs> no, I just like that. Do you feel better about yourself? Do you feel good about what you did, Noam? Uh, no, I, I honestly, I love learning. So for me, the list of things that I want to learn is more than I'm going to have time to go through in my lifetime. Like, I am a writer, but I would say the thing that I really am obsessed about is learning itself. And and so very often what I'm doing when I'm doing a learning project isn't even just to acquire that skill, but because I want to understand the learning process for acquiring all skills. And so for the MIT challenge, I would say that one of the main benefits is that I got a lot better at programming. So I did a little bit of programming beforehand, but I got a lot better at it after doing the MIT challenge. And that's a very useful skill. I still use it today. I still write programs for things. Um, often for weird things that you wouldn't expect. So like I'm learning Chinese and I wrote a program that went online and like auto-generated all these flashcards based on like frequency and other variables and stuff. And and so it was helpful for me in learning other things, even having the programming knowledge. For the languages, I love learning from other per people's perspectives. And so for me, to be honest with you, even if I never retained a word of the languages I learned during that trip, which obviously I want to do, but being able to go to those countries and interact with people from different cultures in their language. So meaning, you know, if you go to, if, let's say you go to, let's say you go to Japan and you try to interact with Japanese people, but you only interact with the people who can speak to you in English and you only interact with them in English, you're seeing a very limited view of that country. And so for me, being able to go to China and interact with Chinese people who don't speak English, have never learned it before, have a completely different perspective on life, on culture, on world events, on these kind of things. That was such a broadening experience for me that, you know, even if, again, I forgot all of them, I think it would still have been enormously valuable. And I think even now it's sort of languages for me are just a gateway to other cultures and understanding other perspectives. And the other projects I've done, I think have been very similar. Like it's just been something that, you know, that would be really cool. I'd like to be able to do that. And so I've, you know, thrown myself into these projects to learn things because it really excites me. And so for me, I hope to learn tons of things. And so my, my point of saying, you know, what's the purpose of learning it is not that, you know, everything has to have a, a super practical or utilitarian justification when you're learning it. So, you know, I learned quantum mechanics. I'm not going to become a physicist. You know, I'm not going to be like running little interference experiments and, you know, deducing the laws of nature. But for me, a big reason to understand quantum mechanics is that I wanted to have this kind of, this is what reality is at the baseline. And so when I'm thinking about anything else, I can kind of like, you know, think about it in those terms. Whereas, you know, you talk to people who, let's say, only know a little bit of quantum mechanics and, you know, quantum mechanics is sort of a famous kind of BS subject where people believe all types of crazy things about it that aren't true. And, you know, I didn't want to be like that. I didn't want my model of what the world looks like to be, to be based on that. And so for me, I'm really excited about learning all sorts of things. And so that's sort of my motivation for doing these kind of projects. Uh, but that doesn't mean, mean that I try to learn it just, you know, well, I have no idea where I'm going to use this or I don't have no idea what it's for or how I'm going to learn it. Because when you learn things that way, you often don't really learn it. Whereas if you think about it, you know, this is my purpose for learning this. You, you structure how you learn things in such a, such a way that it becomes a lot more effective. Yeah, it's funny, you know, learning language and interacting, like yeah. you said, with Chinese people in Chinese, in China. That's the only way you're really going to get to the true alien feel and, and experience probably the most dramatic learning, because that's how you really get to something far different, a far different experience from what you're normally used to. So that's what I got out of you saying there. And then, um, well, I would just, I, yeah, I would just add to that. Like, it's, it's kind of funny because you go to these other countries and you speak other languages. So you have that like feeling of otherness that like it's different from what you know, but you also have this feeling of sameness. So it's sort of in, 
exploring these things that you realize kind of what the human universals are and like you know people read novels and watch movies to like understand the human condition i say learn languages go to other places and immerse yourself and you will realize what is true of all people that you know transcends kind of the superficial differences as well how how has this affected how you relate to other people you know family friends etc do you sense any resentment or um, that they <laughs> feel like they can i don't know has it has it hurt relationships yeah. has it helped has it made you have to change the people you interact with no actually i think it's deepened it um I would say that, well, first of all, you know, people, when you're taking on projects like this might think, okay, you're a little weird. <laughs> I probably am. So that's, you know, point taken. Um, but I think for me, one of the things that's been really valuable is when you learn something that let's say someone else cares about. So let's say, you know, you study a bit of biology and then you talk to someone who, you know, they're a biology major. And what I found is that it is just this instant connection point. Because once you understand something that someone else cares about, then they're just sort of like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think about this, too. And I think about that, too. And so what I've learned is that people are their own little islands of knowledge and personal experience and things that they've learned. And the more things you learn, the more you get to go to those islands and get to be like, no, I understand you. And I know why you're excited about this. And I know why you care about that. And so for me, it's really been the opposite, that learning all these things has just introduced me to people and ideas and um, relationships and, and friendships that just would have been like opaque to me before, you know? And there's still things that I don't understand super well, and I can tell that it puts barriers between someone who like, they really care about that, but I don't know anything about it. And so, you know, for me, every new thing that you learn, every new thing that you add just becomes this gateway to, uh, to having that depth and those meaningful connections with other people. So what's next for you? What projects are you working on now? Oh, man, my list is huge. I've been working on this book. So for people who have been listening to this conversation, the reason I sound kind of obsessively crazy about this is because this has been my life for 10 years, and this book has been my life for the last three. So I've just been obsessed with this. Wow. And so, you know, it's hard to see past just getting past this book. But, I mean, I have so many things I want to do. I'd like to, I'd like to do a project with music. Um, I'd like to do uh, more stuff with art, uh, with painting particularly. I'd like to do um, a, a writing project. I've been writing for a long time, but I like the process of like, okay, I'm good at this. How do you become like extremely good at it? So this has been something that's been obsessing me for a while. Machine learning. Uh, I don't know. The, the list goes on and on. All right. Very good. So um, your book comes out again, August 6th. It's going to be on Amazon mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, probably Barnes and Noble places like that. And you, you mentioned offline an audiobook oh, yeah. will be coming right about, you know, sometime around then. Uh, so it'll be available in a lot of formats. Um, yeah. Any extra bonus material? Uh, you know, do you have a website for the book where people can go and, uh, you know, if they pre-order it, do they get any benefits or bonuses for doing so? Yeah. So I'm not sure when this podcast is going to be coming out. If you, um, if you do actually go to my website, pre-order it, or you order it, definitely send me a receipt and uh, we can get you something. I think um, if you come to my website, I have almost 1300 articles. I have other things about learning, about habits, about goals, motivation, everything that you might want to do to improve yourself. So definitely, even if you know, you're interested in the book, I think the blog I have, uh, I have, many books worth of information there. So if you want to come, it's uh, scotthyoung.com. And uh, yeah, I, you know, it's been a great conversation with you. And, and I hope for those of you that listened this far, that if you're interested in the book, you'll check it out. And if you do, 
I would say this, you know, it's a, it's obviously a compliment for anyone who decides to buy the book, but it's an even bigger compliment if you read it and even bigger one than that, if you do something with it. So anyone who tries their own ultra learning project or reads the book and it inspires them to do something, please reach out to me. I really look forward to hearing your stories as well. Yeah. And one last thing I could tell listeners, I mean, it sounds silly and maybe it's only in my own mind, but you know, I've been reading your book for a few weeks here. I got an advanced copy and when I'm in a bookstore or wherever, coffee shop and I'm reading it the book's sitting out there and people see it I feel good I feel like ha ah, you know I've got this book where that, that makes yeah. me look good just to read it I know it's silly but I actually feel like that in some weird way so maybe that's an extra bonus for for people that pick up the book you'll actually probably look smarter to people reading it and going through the book <laughs> so well, hey, you know what? If you read the book and, and people, if, if the reason you buy the book is because you want to have a book that says ultra learning on the front when you're out in coffee shops reading it, I'd be more than happy with that motivation. And hopefully you'll realize that you can be an ultra learner too. And so it's not just reading the book. You could do some of the incredible things and, and you could be telling me about it. And maybe I'll be telling your story in the in the 10th anniversary edition or something like that. That's great. Well, Scott, thanks for coming on the podcast. It's been a yeah, great thanks. experience. I appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks for having me and thanks for giving me the opportunity to share this thing that I care about so much. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.